one of the main things that I was doing is responding to all of the critics of school choice and just showing the world how ridiculous the arguments were against allowing the money to follow the child. Um, and I think uh, since we have logic on our side, it's been easy to make the case for educational freedom. We also have morality on our side, but there isn't any good reason to fund failing buildings when you can fund the student directly instead. And that has become more and more obvious, especially since uh, the pandemic and, and the school closures of March of 2020, which is another subject we can get into. Welcome to the Narrative Podcast, where we're unpacking the toughest issues of the day. My name is Aaron Bear, and I am president of Center for Christian Virtue. Uh, and welcome to volume three of the Narrative Podcast, episode one. Uh, on this uh, volume, we're going to be jumping into the, the whole concept of what we're calling children first. Uh, and really what we're seeing today, uh, where our culture, our society, our country uh, is making children, is forcing children to make sacrifices for adults. Um, you know, really, this is a, a concept that we saw. Um, a, a good friend of ours, Katie Faust, from uh, an organization called Them for Them Before Us, uh, and and it was such a good framing of of just one of the many ways uh, our our country, our culture, uh, is is flipping priorities upside down. Uh, you may be wondering uh, where my co-host David Mahan is. Uh, if I had to guess, knowing David uh, on on today, uh, he's probably somewhere deep in the woods uh, in Ohio hunting something. Uh, with, uh, with with either a, a his bow or, or, or something else, uh, maybe with just a, a butcher knife jumping around and on top of deer. Uh, but that's that's David's uh, th that's David's Friday today. Um, so you're you're flying solo with me on on segment one. But the good news is uh, when we get around to the second part uh, of the podcast, you don't just get David; you also get Troy McIntosh, uh, the director of our Ohio Christian Education Network, uh, because we have a, an incredible guest to to kick off this uh, conversation around children first in Corey DeAngelis. Um, if you've never heard of Corey before, uh, you got to go follow him on Twitter. He's phenomenal. He has done more to expose uh, what teachers unions uh, are doing uh, to kids today uh, in, in so many different ways, just through uh, sharing their own words uh, and exposing what they're doing on Twitter alone. Um, and uh, so he's a great follow on Twitter, but also a brilliant guy uh, who's willing to speak really plainly. Um, you know, I, and I got to be honest, especially as we're talking about uh, th this whole concept of what kids are going through today. You know, th th there's a part of what the left has done for so long in kind of trying to shame and pressure uh, conservatives, Christians, uh, into not talking honestly about what's happening. You know, the, the whole the whole concept of, oh, well, you don't want to be anti-public school, right? Or you you can't be anti-teacher. How, how could you talk about these these education issues? Do, do, do you hate the public schools? Do you hate teachers? Which, again, is on its face, we know is such a silly argument for them to make. Um, but the bottom line is it what they've done effectively for so long is they've silenced us into talking about the very real problems uh, facing uh, kids today. And, and the fact that we're spending billions of dollars on an industry, on an education industry that is fundamentally failing kids and, and all just because of social pressure around the, the, the whole concept of, well, you don't want to be seen as anti-public school. Uh, they, they have silenced us from, from talking about these issues. And so again, th this whole theme you're, you're going to see as we go through this volume, as we unpack it, we've got some amazing guests, uh, lined up, 
uh, for for the, the this the series, um, you're just going to see th- this trend all across our country today of how we're making children make sacrifices for adults, which is just not not the way it, it should be. We were actually just uh, talking to my 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 five year old about uh, my my wife's a big uh, Titanic uh, history buff. She loves it. We have all these Titanic books. Uh, and I always think whenever we're talking about this issue, you know, on the Titanic, they talked about women and children first. Um, and if you look at our, our culture today, we've t- totally turned that upside down. If the Titanic went down today, you'd have a bunch of life bolts full, full of men uh, because they're the, the stronger ones pushing everyone off. And, and there's no concept of we need to be caring for women and children, especially. Um, so with that, though, I want to dive into some of the, the things going on today. Again, you know, whenever we start a new volume off, there's so many stories that, that we can unpack so many things that have happened since we were last with you. Um, and there were just a few that jumped out to me, uh, that, that I've been, been itching to share with you. Uh, one of which actually, uh, sparked from a, a little bit of a, a tiff. I got in with a, a reporter, uh, the other day when, when, when NPR tweeted out this story of, um, because this is really the, the pressing issues facing America today, uh, which emojis are the most racist, uh, which thumbs up emojis are the most racist. And if you didn't know, uh, if you are, are someone like me and you just use the default emoji on your uh, iPhone, the, the white, the, the, the yellow gloved emoji, you are actually uh, doing microaggressions uh, and being incredibly racist because you're not uh, accurately reflecting what your skin tone is, because that of course is the most important thing about you. Um, and, and again, you know, to see, you know, they, they were going off about the privilege it takes to, to, you know, use the, the, the yellow hand emoji that that's unbelievable privilege. And, and the one, just, just the absolute aloofness, the, the, the disconnectedness to, to know, you know, that the, to, to not acknowledge their own privilege of being paid by the government to write stories about which emojis are the most racist. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable uh, lack of self-awareness. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable level of navel gazing. But the, the thing that, to me that, that really jumped off, I, I, you know, I, I tweeted something out about this. This is your brain on critical race theory, right? When, when everything is viewed through the lens of race and, and you're just desperate to find proof of systematic racism in, in all things, the, these are the types of stories you end up writing. Um, and and I, I, I posted that. And uh, a, a reporter uh, came back at me and, and, and said, oh, this was, I was being obnoxious with this. And, you know, my, my whole thing that I, I, I got so frustrated with this guy because it's like, look, you guys are over here talking about uh, emojis, right? And meanwhile, and, and you're, you're talking about emojis as, as how they're hurting the black community. Meanwhile, in Columbus Public, for instance, or let's let's start with Cincinnati. In Cincinnati Public, uh, for instance, you have a forty-six percent chronic absentee rate in the schools last year. Forty-six percent. So that chronic absentee rates means you missed eighteen days or more of school. So after doing all this, you know, having their schools shut down, uh, they still have eight. They still have forty six percent chronic absentee rate in Columbus. And literally, I, I had to go double check these numbers because it didn't look right. In Columbus, it's seventy five percent of kids are chronically absent in the city of Columbus today. And so, meanwhile, NPR is covering all of these stories about emojis. 
but you have the, the, the largest districts in the state that are predominantly African-American and these schools, because of the teachers unions, because of the teachers unions bullying, they are, they have been closed and doing what they call it. Again, this is actually one thing that, that, um, Corey DeAngelis tweeted out and he really convicted me of this, what they call remote learning, which is a lie. Never, never use the phrase remote learning. There's no learning happening, uh, remotely. That's, that has been proven. It's, it, it, it's just, it is a facade to make the teachers unions and the public schools feel like they're not being completely derelict of their duties, which they are when they, when they shut down schools for COVID. Like it, it, it's an absolute sham because so many other schools all across the country have been open this entire time safely and teachers aren't dying and kids aren't dying. And yeah, people are getting the virus just like they're getting the virus everywhere um, and they're recovering and they're fine. Um, and, and so the, the, this, this whole concept um, of uh, th- this is uh, of critical race theory nitpicking these really crazy things, but ignoring the realities. And I'll, and I'll just say too, and this is a, another rabbit trail that we'll, we'll save another time. You actually look, you compare the inner city schools to the suburban schools. Um, and I, I was just kind of going around uh, comparing the numbers a little bit ago. And I, I should say the, the Columbus Dispatch has a, had a phenomenal uh, resource they made of all the school districts in the state of Ohio comparing these things. And, and again, what Ohio is just a microcosm of the rest of the country. You're seeing these same trends everywhere. Um, you know, in the suburbs, you actually see chronic absentee rates this school year going down. And we can talk about everything that goes into that, but I will guarantee you, I will guarantee you, if you look at this uh, if you look at these the, the the schools that have the highest chronic absentee rates compared to the schools that have the lowest, the the thread that you'll find between them is not money because Columbus Public gets more money than anybody else. Cincinnati Public gets more money than any other school district around. It's two parent households, um, and again, this is where critical theory broadly groups like BLM uh, that are are based on the mentality of critical theory uh, are. are fundamentally damaging and hurting the very cause they seem to care about because their their whole one of their stated goals is destroying the nuclear family uh, and if you want to see that the plight of the african-american community uh, continue to be uh, continue to be exacerbated uh, just continue to destroy the the, the nuclear family and what is going to be the long-term impact of another of a, a generation uh, of african-american families uh, of ch- african-american children being chronically absent from school, not learning to read, being neglected by their school district, um, in large part because their family structure has been so destroyed by uh, by culture, by government programs, all, all these things, it is massive. And the very people that say they care so much about racism and they care about the black community are asleep at the wheel at this because uh, they refuse to acknowledge the, the real contributing factors. Uh, the, the next thing, the next story that really jumped out to me that, that you can't miss, you got to go read this one. Um, and again, it is related, uh, to COVID, uh, is a story on the daily wire, uh, by, uh, a former world magazine reporter, uh, Megan Basham. Uh, and you know, she really, what, what she dived into really dove into, I should say, is, uh, how, uh, NIH, um, so Anthony Fauci uh, and uh, Dr. Francis Collins um, used evangelical leaders all over the country uh, to push their COVID messaging and a lot of times to push their COVID propaganda. So again, you might remember uh, when the, uh, when the lab leak link uh, lab leak theory first came out, 
um, that, you know, President Trump floated and uh, a number of folks, because again, they, they were looking at how this virus was developed and spread so quickly and all that. And immediately, you know, Fox News, Brett Baer exposed a lot of uh, the emails along this lines that showed uh, there was actually a lot of credibility to this, uh, but it was going to make uh, NIH and the U.S. government look bad because we've been funding this Wuhan lab where a lot of this, where, where it looks like COVID came out of, COVID-19 came out of. Um, and uh, and so they went on this big campaign, uh, Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci went on this big campaign to discredit the lab leak theory. Um, well, again, fast forward, we now know it, you know, the lab leak theory, if not being definitely the, the case of what happened with it. Uh, there's there's a great possibility, plausibility that this is how COVID-19 uh, came about and spread across the country and has, you know, wrecked so many lives. Um, and uh, but what you saw was uh, evangelical leaders jumping in with both feet to uh, push this message out. Um, and even things like, you know, Ed Stetzer writing a, an op-ed on Christianity Today that was later pulled down, that has just been deleted. Um, and Ed was basically, you know, denouncing Christians who would even float the idea of a lab leak theory. So again, I, I actually don't want to go down that path so much. You can go read the story from, from Megan uh, and all of her reporting uh, along what evangelical leaders kind of uh, adopted uh, a lot of uh, Fauci's COVID messaging and pushed out. That, that, that's not so much as what I want to key in. I, I want to more key in on um, the fascination, especially with Dr. Francis Collins, um, because, you know, broadly speaking, and you could actually see in the emails, there was a, a strategic decision made to deploy Francis Collins uh, to evangelical churches um, because Francis Collins uh, is a self-proclaimed Christian. Um, and, and I, I want to have a nuanced discussion here just real quickly on this, um, because, you know, I never want to put myself, I don't think anybody should ever put themselves in the position of, of saying, uh, of determining a person's heart in terms of if they are actually saved. Um, you know, a God knows and God will be the determiner of that. If somebody says they're a Christian, I'm going to, I'm going to take them at their word, but I will judge their actions and say, is, does that align with, uh, with the Bible? Does that align with God's uh, eternal truth? And I, we're, we're called to do that. Ultimately, again, could, could someone's actions be way out of line, um, and their heart be saved and sanctification is working its process. Absolutely. I always want to leave that door open when the thief on the cross, uh, proclaimed that Jesus was Lord, uh, did all of his sins and all of his, you know, all of the bad habits, and all of the bad thoughts that led him to be, on, you know, a thief on the cross. Did all those melt away right in that moment? Absolutely not. So I, I, I always want to leave that, that door open, but I do want to talk about, um, this common thread and especially some um, some evangelical and some Catholic circles of when a prominent individual, whether in the entertainment industry or the scientific industry or, uh, you know, especially a some type of left leaning industry proclaims to be a Christian. We're so desperate. A lot of Christians are so desperate for validation, uh, for uh you know, being connected with someone in one of these industries that we just, we give them a platform, we give them a space that we typically wouldn't with somebody with their views. Let, let, Francis Collins is the best example of this. Uh, Francis Collins has done more to advance the transgender cause 
uh, to, to advance transgender medicine, forcing kids on cross-sex uh, cross hormones, puberty blocking drugs, all of these type things, types of things. He's done more to advance um, fetal tissue research. So advancing the abortion industry as NIH director than anyone before him. And, and he's done such awful things to hurt children, to deny the way we were made in God's image um, and sterilize them for life. But because he said he was a Christian, we just ignore all of that. Now, honestly, tell me how Francis Collins endorsing uh, transgenderism with one breath, endorsing abortion policies in one breath, but then saying, oh, but I'm a Christian and us buying into that is any different than, let's say, uh, you know, Strom Thurmond or any of these, uh, you know, any of these racist uh uh, so-called Christians from the uh, you know 20th century, who on one hand said, "I love Jesus," you know, here I I I believe in Christ crucified and all these things, but also black people shouldn't be in my school, or black people shouldn't be able to use the the same water fountain as me. I mean, they're doing the exact same thing where they are uh, they're they're being given a platform by proclaiming Jesus in one breath, but they're advancing evil in the next. And this is one of these things I think for, for, for the church broadly, for Christians broadly today, th there's such a temptation uh, to, to want to be, to want to have that validation so that when we see somebody who says they're a Christian, we're so desperate to say, oh yeah, see, you can be a Christian and be, you know, be excellent in your job and raise to the highest levels of, of whatever industry. And all of that is true. But we need to be wise about who we're giving platforms to because what Francis Collins has done through his radical transgender uh, policies, through his radical um, abortion policies, is destroyed countless lives. And again, this, this sounds, I know for some folks this will, this will sound harsh, but we're leading people astray because basically what you're communicating to your congregation, what you're communicating to people is this is someone to follow. And so when they see him celebrating Pride Month, when they see him celebrating preferred pronouns and all of this damaging ideology, they're seeing, oh, that's some that's an act I should follow. Um, and, and again, this this doesn't mean that everybody we give a platform has to be perfectly ideologically pure. Obviously, there's there's many issues that we could disagree on. And, but there's some things that are clear cut. Racism is clear cut. Right. Segregation is clear cut. Transgenderism, abortion, it's clear cut. Um, and especially in this culture where already the church is being pressured to think that this is a good, they're calling good evil and evil good. Uh, there, there is serious lack of judgment, serious lack of discernment by giving a guy like Francis Collins a platform. Well, I, I, I've gone too long already out of this. There's, again, I, I, there's so much that we've missed uh, over these last few months since our, our last volume. If you haven't caught any of the last volumes, go back and, and catch them. Um, I, I'm really excited for you to hear this conversation with Corey DeAngelis. He's a brilliant guy. Uh, and I'm excited for this entire volume that we're going to have on Children First. Uh, stick around. We'll be right back. Center for Christian Virtue seeks the good of our neighbors by advocating for public policy that reflects the truth of the gospel. We empower people like you to have a voice in the culture on the most important political and cultural issues of the day. Through our public policy advocacy, grassroots activism, Church Ambassador Network, Ohio Christian Education Network, and Christian Business Partnership, there are countless ways for you to get involved. Join the movement today by visiting ccv.org or by clicking the link in the show notes. That's ccv.org and click join the network. This is Center for Christian Virtue President Aaron Bear here with my co-host, 
David Mahan. And also we have a special co-host with us this week, uh, the executive director of our Ohio Christian Education Network, Troy McIntosh, uh, who could not help but jump in on this episode when, when we had a very special guest joining us. Again, on this volume, we're diving into how culture today and our country especially uh, is forcing children to make sacrifices for adults, really turning the world upside down as we generally knew it. And I think uh, no place is that clearer than education right now. And that's why we're, we're thrilled to have our guest uh, with us here, Corey DeAngelis, who's the National Director of Research at the American Federation for Children, the Executive Director at Educational Freedom Institute, and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and a senior, senior fellow at Reason Foundation. He was named on Forbes 30 Under 30 list for his work on education policy and received the Buckley Award from America's Future in 2020. Uh, DeAngelis' research research primarily focuses on the effects of school choice programs on non-academic outcomes such as criminal activity, character skills, mental health, and political participation. He has authored or co-authored over 40 journal articles, book chapters, and reports on education policy, and he is the co-editor of School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom. But if you're like me, the way you really know Corey is from his Twitter account. Um, and, and Corey, I, I got to say, you know, I've had the privilege of, of working in uh, on education policy for a number of years. And now you're everywhere in the school choice movement. We, you know, how did your Twitter account blow up like it did? And, and, and tell us more about how you got to the scene here of what you're doing today. Yeah, thank you so much for, for having me. Um, I can't really tell you the secret sauce for the, the Twitter blowing up, but I think one of the main things that I was doing is responding to all of the critics of school choice and just showing the world how ridiculous the arguments were against allowing the money to follow the child. Um, and I think uh, since we have logic on our side, it's been easy to make the case for educational freedom. We also have morality on our side, but there isn't any good reason to fund failing buildings when you can fund the student directly instead. And that has become more and more obvious, especially since uh, the pandemic and, and the school closures of March of 2020, which is another subject we can get into. But yeah, I really just started off uh, responding to people and using quick one-liners to just point out the, uh, the, uh, ridiculous position of, of the other side. And I also like to use analogies to make it make sense for more people. As you would say, this, this is the way, um, but uh, <laughs> you know, really Corey, I, I want to dive straight into, you, you just touched on, on, on one thing in particular uh, that I think is the, the best place for us to start. And that is, uh, I don't think there, there's a clear example um, or well, maybe there's a few, but one of the clearest examples I would say of how, Today, we are forcing kids to make sacrifices. Kids bear the burden um, of, of issues or crises instead of adults, uh, then COVID and school closures in particular. Uh, what have you guys seen at American Federation for Children uh, and, and all of your other research on the impacts of, of COVID school closures, COVID-related school closures on kids? Yeah, COVID didn't break the government school system. It was already broken. And the past nearly two years now has simply shined a spotlight on the main problem with K-12 education all across the country, which happens to be a massive, long-existing power imbalance between the government school monopoly and individual families. I mean, there was one thing for a failing government school to continue to receive children's education dollars, regardless of how well they did and regardless of their academic performance year after year, but it's another conversation altogether for those same buildings to continue receiving your kids' education dollars 
regardless of whether they even open their doors for business. I mean, you had private schools suing the government in states like Ohio and all across the country for the right to reopen to meet the needs of their of their families. But then you had the public school teachers unions fighting for the opposite. They fought to remain closed. And the main difference there is one of incentives, that one of those sectors gets children's education dollars regardless of whether they open their doors for business. It's not that the people are any better or worse in one sector over the other. It's a problem that's baked into the government school system itself. And in fact, it was actually worse than that. It wasn't that they understood that they can keep their benefits in terms of job security and pay while vacationing in Puerto Rico, like we saw with the Chicago Teachers Union board member in January of 2021, while railing against going back to work in person. It was it was all fine and dandy to go to vacation overseas in Puerto Rico uh, poolside in person. But it was worse than that because they understood that they could actually hold children's education hostage in order to secure multi-million billion dollar ransom payments from the federal government. And it worked for them. They were able to secure $190 billion in these ransom payments from the federal government since March of 2020, which turns out to be three to $4,000 per student uh, nationwide. In Chicago, it was much higher than that. It was about 80, over $8,000 per student. And in some places like Flint, Michigan, they, they have indefinite school closures. They, they, they have no um, date set to reopen these schools. And at this point, it's like the hostage takers have received the ransom payments and kept the hostages. They're, they're still closed. It's, it's absolutely bonkers. And meanwhile, over these past two years, these closures have hurt kids academically, mentally, physically, socially, in so many ways, this has hurt the children. Meanwhile, the science has consistently shown that schools should be the last things to close and the first things to open. They have some of the lowest risk customers in all of society, kids. And we know that from the data. We've known it for a long time. And you still have some places that are playing politics and putting politics over the needs of families and children uh, which is absolutely ridiculous. In, in Flint, Michigan, they spend over $21,000 per kid now, well over that amount. Give that money directly to the parents so they can find alternatives for their, their, their kids. These families shouldn't have to struggle and sacrifice any longer just because the status quo wants to keep their money regardless of how well they do. Uh, one other thing that I have to hit on before we change topics is, is that remote learning had an unintended benefit um, it, in that it provided an additional layer of transparency. Parents were a, finally able to see what the heck was going on in the classroom. And a lot of parents who thought their kids were in good schools, just based on the average math and reading standardized test scores, started to figure out that even their schools were failing their kids in another way. There's another dimension of quality, which Happened to happen to do with the values of the, in, the instruction in the classroom, and so families started to realize that maybe they aren't happy with their their kids' curriculum or the way that the teachers are teaching certain things in the classroom, and that's another argument for school choice. That's another argument to um, allow the families' education, the children's education dollars, to follow them to wherever they're getting an education maybe a private school that better aligns with their values. Math and reading test scores are just one element of school quality. There's so many other things that are important to parents. And that is kind of a light bulb has went off in so many parents' heads uh, since 2020. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Corey, can you, um, you know, you, you 
spar with the teachers unions uh, on a regular basis. And a lot of times the, the, the teachers unions are, you know, the, it, they're the elephant in the room that a lot of folks don't want to talk about um, because I, I think one, a lot of folks know teachers. Um, they have to, they might be a teacher. They might have a teacher in their family. They might friend with a teacher. And so it makes them feel awkward to, to say, to speak ill of the teachers unions. But, but can you talk a little bit about what the teachers unions have done? And you, you alluded to, you know, that how they you know, were really the, the driving force behind school closures. Um, but can you speak to, the, you know, the power they wield and how they function? Yeah, and teachers and teachers unions are not the same thing, right? The teachers unions aren't representing the teachers very well. And they're, I would argue they're not advocating for policies that really benefit teachers all that much. If you look at spending patterns over time, we see that we shovel more and more funding into the government school system, but it doesn't go into the classroom and it doesn't go towards higher teacher salaries. For example, nationwide, a report by Kennesaw State University professor Ben Scafferty found that between 1992 and 2014, per pupil education expenditures jumped by 27% after adjusting for inflation. But over the same period, teacher salaries in real terms after adjusting for inflation actually dropped by 2%. So they're pouring more and more money into the system, but it's going towards administrative bloat and staffing surges, which is great for teachers union bosses like Randy Weingarten, who make over $560,000 a year, because that means more dues paying members and a stronger voting block. But it doesn't do all that much for individual teachers who are already in the system, particularly the best performing teachers who actually deserve more funding than what they're currently getting. And so there's a disconnect between the incentives of the teachers themselves and the incentives of the union bosses. Look at COVID. We've seen this with the COVID era as well. In Los Angeles public schools, they've released some information about their budgets and they've already shown us that they expect to lose 6% of their student population, but they're they're increasing their per people funding to over $25,000, $26,000 per kid. It's extremely, it's like a 69% increase over the past few years on a per people basis. And the district officials released statements saying that they plan to increase the number of teachers in the building by 8%, the number of custodial workers in the buildings by 25%, and the number of support psychological psychological support staff by um, around 80%. In what other industry do you lose 6% of your customer base and then you hire more and more people and throw them into the system? It's because they want more dues-paying members uh, not because they really want to help students. It's, it's just totally backwards that they're prioritizing their own needs over the needs of children. But look, the, another silver lining here is that all of the ridiculous stunts by the teachers unions, which is another thing that, that the political dynamics and uh, backgrounds of the teachers union bosses don't really represent the individual teachers that well either. There's a lot of conservative teachers for example, but if you look at these major teachers unions making headlines over the past two years, they've been pushing for explicitly left-leaning policies that have nothing to do outright with reopening the CRT, schools. Yeah, outright CRT resolutions, and then they say CRT is not in the schools. Yeah, well, on the one hand, CRT doesn't exist in, in public schools. On the other hand, oh my goodness, they're trying to ban CRT. Well, if, if they're 
if they're not in the schools in the first place, and then why would it be a problem to ban Sear? I mean, I personally, I don't really have a stance on what the curriculum should look like, but this is another good argument for school choice. It's that you're forcing everybody into a one size fits all system. And look, the reality is parents are going to disagree on how they want their kids raised. Parents are going to disagree about the type of curriculum that works best for their individual kids. And they're going to just, uh, Kids are unique and they're going to be uh, they're not going to always fit into the same school that works best for them. So it might just be that they learn better in another environment, maybe as another mission that they're more aligned with in another school. And maybe they just have teachers that are able to figure it out for their kids in another in, in institution. So even if you are in a uh, assigned to a, a, a highly ranked public school, it might not be the right fit. And that's another argument as to why the money should follow the child. That's the best solution going forward with freedom rather than force to allow every single family to take their kids' education dollars to the institutions that align best with their values and best meet their needs in other ways. But look, the teachers unions have overplayed their hand. And at this point, they're essentially destroying their own empire. And it's actually kind of glorious. And I think that the, the reason for this is that is because they've been so drunk on their own power for so long that they can't seem to reverse course. They just keep overplaying their hand. Randy Weingarten keeps stepping in it over and over and over again. She's finally learning to re uh, turn off her replies on Twitter because a lot of people aren't, aren't putting up with the nonsense anymore and, and gaslighting uh, with, with their false narratives. And the, 2021 was already, we're already calling it the year of school choice because 19 states, including Ohio, expanded or enacted programs to fund students as opposed to systems. It's a monumental year of school choice, and we're just getting started. 2022 is looking good as well. We already, as of this recording, have 26 states at least that have introduced bills to fund students as opposed to systems. Ohio is one of those states with the backpack bill, which would be a huge step in the right direction towards unleashing educational freedom for all families. And look, people all across the nation are figuring out that the other side is intellectually bankrupt. They don't have any good arguments to force particularly low-income kids in failing government schools for 13 years without exit options. It's absolutely reprehensible to try to fight to protect the status quo at the expense of millions of families with no recourse. That's, uh, that's, right. that's totally problematic. And especially when you point out that we already fund people as opposed to buildings with every other level of education, with higher education, we have Pell Grants and the GI Bill. We have other scholarship programs at, at the state level in different states with pre-K programs, such as the Federal Head Start program and just about any other state level pre-K funded, uh, state funded initiative. The funding goes to the parents or the student, and then they can pick public or private, religious or non-religious. Uh, well, and that's, that's essentially how we do every other government program. When, when you look at SNAP benefits and you look at housing benefits and all, it, it's tied to the individual, yep. not to, you know, some government agency that just has an, basically a bottomless budget and they can decide, 
how, how they want to do it themselves. So yeah, Med- Medicaid dollars, you can take those yeah. to private religious hospitals. You don't have to go to the government hospital. You're not residentially assigned to a hospital food stamps. Just imagine if we force low income families to take their food stamp dollars to a residentially assigned government run grocery store, that'd be absolutely ridiculous. And it's currently absolutely ridiculous that we force families to take their kids' education dollars to a residentially assigned government run school without having any other choices in the matter with food stamps. You can take the money to Safeway if you want, but you could also go to Walmart. You can go to Trader Joe's. The funding follows the decision of the family. Same thing with section eight housing vouchers. The funding follows the decision of the individual or the family. All we're arguing is that we apply that same logic to K through 12 education. Why would it be any different? Well, we, we know why it's why there's the same people who support these other things don't like it when it comes to K-12 education, and it's all about power dynamics. Choice is the norm for higher education, pre-K, and everything else, but choice threatens an entrenched special interest only when it comes to those in-between years of K-12 education, the teachers' unions. So, of course, they fight as hard as possible against any change to the status quo, but people are, the jig is up. People are figuring out that this is all nonsense just just to protect the monopoly, but look, Education funding is meant for educating children, not for propping up and protecting a particular institution, public or private. The money's meant for the kid, not for the buildings. And it's time to, for the money to follow the child. Yeah. Corey, one of the things that, uh, you know, opponents of educational freedom often use is, is this argument that this is going to destroy public school systems and kids who remain in the public schools are going to end up with an inferior education. But you like to refer to a pretty large body of research that shows that when choice is introduced into a marketplace, the the performance of public school students actually improve. Can you talk a little bit about what the research is showing in that area? Yeah. First of all, my question is, which is a rhetorical question is why would giving families a choice destroy public schools? The other side can't answer this question because it's essentially them telling on themselves. Their main argument against school choice is that they understand that lots of families aren't happy with the current system. The, the, the traditional schools wouldn't lose any students at all if they were doing a good job and meeting the needs of all the families. But they understand that that's not the case. That's an argument for school choice, not against it. That's an argument for letting families free, not an argument to trap particularly low-income families into the current system. But the other response is, look, competition is a rising tide that lifts all boats. And we have tons of evidence on this. 25 of 27 existing studies on the topic find that private school choice competition leads to better outcomes in the public schools as well. And there's a 2019 peer-reviewed meta-analysis on the topic published in a journal called Educational Policy. And they take all of the effect sizes and uh, find a meta analytic average, finding that this body of research similarly finds a positive competitive effect of school choice on the kids who remain in the public school system. And a related body of research find, there's five studies that I've seen on the topic, which I've written about at the Washington Examiner in a post called School Choice Benefits Teachers Too, All five of these studies find that private and charter school competition tends to lead to higher teacher salaries in the public school system. Competition in the market for goods and services is good for the consumers, the families, and the students. But competition in the labor market is good for employees, the teachers. 
this, this is this is a win-win situation. It's a win for the employees. It's a win for the students. The public schools aren't destroyed from competition. We've seen this play out over the past three decades. Everywhere that it's been tried, the public schools have actually gotten better. They up their game in response to competition. And in fact, if you look at the numbers as well, that with most of these proposals, only a fraction of the funding follows the child to a private school with most of the existing programs. So what that means in the public schools is that they get to keep thousands of dollars for students are no longer educating. So on a per people basis, they actually end up with higher per people revenues and expenditures in the public school system. Just imagine if you stopped shopping at Walmart and started shopping at Trader Joe's for whatever reason, and Walmart got to keep a, a large chunkier grocery bill each week. That would be a great deal for Walmart. And I would argue with most of these proposals, this is a great deal for the public schools as well because they benefit financially on a per people basis. Well, uh, Corey, I, I, this is David May, and I have to say, uh, man, it's good to finally meet you in person, uh, kind of virtually. Um, I see sometime you get to run around with my boy, uh, Walter Blanks. Uh, I went to school, my wife and I went to school with his mother. So uh, when you see him, tell him I said, hey, and listen to his mama. Um, a lot of times when, when I'm communicating on this topic, man, I'm, I'm hearing things like, well, you know, we, we could we could thrive, too, in the public system if we if we could pick and choose our kids or, um, you know, we if we had more money, you know, we could we could have better outcomes, too. You know, if we had a bunch of rich kids coming here, uh, we could have great outcomes, too, you know, as if uh, basically getting more funding to the public school system equals uh, you know, mm. you know, making improvements and, and really caring for kids. So how, how would you kind of hit, you know, some of those those arguments uh, that, that might yeah. come from some of our inner cities? Yeah, government schools discriminate based on zip code. I believe a mother <laughs> yeah. in Ohio, uh, maybe about a decade ago, actually went to jail for lying about her address to try to get her kids into a better quote unquote public school. These aren't actually public schools if they're discriminating on the basis of zip code. I think there's some open enrollment policies in Ohio now, but they, it's it's voluntary open enrollment. Well, you the have the to Fordham the Institute kids. has that great study that shows yeah. how you know, we have 80% open enrollment in the state, except for the suburban districts surrounding right. the urban course. Yeah. That's uh, right. So they, they discriminate against kids um, in, in the public school system. So uh, I like to turn that back around on, on so they can pick and choose it in a way in, in the public schools. But then my second response is that this is this isn't really an, a, a uh, compelling argument from the other side, because I'm not arguing that private schools are always better than all public schools. I'm just arguing the individual family should have the choice. If that's another public school, fine. If that's a that's private right. school, fine. And if you like your public school, you can keep your public school. And I'm not making an argument about which sector is always better because that's not part of my art. I'm not calling to destroy the public schools like the other side wants, wants everybody to believe. I'm just calling that each individual family would have a choice. I mean, it's a ridiculous conversation to even have. Like, I'm, imagine if I was arguing that we should be allowed to take our food stamp dollars to the grocery store of our choosing. And someone started to say, oh, well, that 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 that's that means you're anti Walmart. That means you want to destroy Walmart. But what are you talking about? I, I might want to take the funding to Walmart. This isn't even a conversation that that we should be having. So. And then as far as, oh, we just need more money, we've thrown more and more money into the government school system year after year, and the results are at best flat over time. 
So money is not going to solve the issue. It can't money can matter in with with education, but only if the schools are not these monopolies that don't have incentives to spend the money wisely. As we've seen over time, they just put it towards administrative bloat and staffing surges that doesn't go to the classroom as much as we'd like. And if they had incentives to spend that money wisely, which would be the result of school choice policy with bottom up accountability, uh, it would give them an incentive to cater to the needs of families and their students. Then then money could might might make a difference. But in this current system, we just keep throwing more money at it and things don't get any better. We shouldn't expect anything to be any different going forward unless we change those those incentives. Yeah, I know. I mean, Columbus Public here, where we are, is, is nearly a billion dollar annual corporation here. And every school is on the, you know, is academically uh, uh, failing right now. Uh, they, you know, they can't keep there for, for all the money they have. You know, it still jumps out to me, um, you know, after being closed for uh, almost a year and a half uh, and, and having all, you know, getting all of this COVID bucks. They all this additional money they got uh, to kick off the 2021 school year, kick off this past school year, 14 of their schools had to close for two weeks because they couldn't turn their air conditioning on. And, and it, you know, the, the, the idea that they're, they're underfunded is, is, is absolutely laughable. So Corey, from, from your perspective, you get, you have a unique vantage point um, getting to work with a bunch of different States, getting to see stuff that works, see stuff that doesn't. Um, for, for people, uh, that are listening, that are, are concerned about what are happening to kids and want to see, you know, uh, more educational choice, more, more school choice programs come in. What do you see that's working? And, and maybe just as important, what do you see that's not working, uh, for, for folks that are, are trying to see this cause move forward? Yeah. One thing, how much is the average government school spending per student in Ohio? It, it must be over $10,000 per student. It's about right? 15, 15 right? uh, average private school tuition. Oh, I just, I just Googled it really quickly. It's half of that amount in Ohio. It's only about 73, 78 per student per year in 2022. So this is, this isn't a money problem. Um, and all across the country, you see that charter schools tend to get less money per student than the traditional public schools. Yet families are, are fleeing to charters and and private schools whenever they get the opportunity. If it was all about money, then the families would just stay in the government schools because money's the solution to all of our problems. But it's not because it's more about how those dollars are spent, not just the overall dollars that you get per student. So look, average private school tuition in Ohio, if I'm, if I'm right on this is half of what they spend in the, in the government schools right now in Ohio, but look, think things that are working, things that aren't, um, What's working really well is that we have these unintended allies called um, the teachers unions that are doing my job for me. I I mean, we need to give Randy Weingarten an award for being the biggest school choice advocate of the past two years in it unintentionally um, for showing their true colors and um, awakening a sleeping giant, which happens to be parents who want more of a say in their kids' education. The parents are the new special interest group in town and they aren't going away anytime soon. They're never going to unsee what they saw in 2020 and they're going to fight to make sure that they have the right to educate their kids as they see fit harder than anyone will ever fight to take that right away from them going forward. I mean, look, parents all across the country in many places 
felt powerless in 2020, and they do they do still in in 2022 in some in, in some instances. Parents are going to fight to make sure they never feel powerless like that ever again going forward in education. They've they've woken up. There's huge momentum behind educational freedom. And these parents aren't just going to sit down and shut up anymore, no matter how many times members of the establishment try to label them as domestic terrorists. And of course, I'm alluding to the National School Board Association mess up when they they let the masks slip. We shouldn't even call them the National School Board Association anymore because they're there have been 19 states over the past couple of months. I think Ohio's one of the first Ohio's ones one, yep, that have pulled their membership and funding from the NSBA, which, look, if we want to be real, we should call them the Regional School Board Association at this point. They, re- they really let the mask slip and, and show everybody who they truly were. And that that's horrible for them, but it's great for parental freedom going forward. You, you better listen to parents and not uh, try to label them in negative ways. You're going to have to work with parents and listen to them. And I think politicians from all parties would be wise to listen to these parents who are more mobilized than ever going forward. Well, uh, I remember I remember when all that was happening because we had a big there was a big dust up here at one of the big Columbus uh, suburban schools uh, there where, you know, these school board members were so offended that parents were showing up and, and yelling at them at the school board meetings over all this stuff. And, and again, it's, it's like, well, this feels like just the most obvious argument for school. You just let them leave. You, you know, you, you don't want to de- deal with parents coming to your school board meetings. Just let them go and you know, say, God bless you. Go, go get them. Yeah, exactly. And look, the other thing is there's not a lot we have to do, uh, even if the teachers unions start to be, be nice and stop saying ridiculous things, even if we have people like the Michigan Democratic Party not posting anti-parent rhetoric on their Facebook page, which I'm not sure if listeners have seen that, but they, they pretty much posted something that, you know, along the lines that, you know, it was like kind of this, it takes a village mentality and that your, your, your parents shouldn't decide what their kids learn. It's up to the community to decide. I don't remember the exact quote, but it backfired on them. And even if organizations that were anti-parent before just stop talking about their anti-parent sentiment. We're still going to move forward, especially because parents are paying attention more than they ever have before. And the problem is systemic. It's that we have millions of kids forced into a one size fits all government school system. And the unfortunate part for the teachers unions, even if they do push for policies that they believe wholeheartedly will work for kids, by definition, it's not going to work for a large segment of the population. That's just the reality. You can't force people into a one-size-fits-all system and expect every single family to be happy. It's a failure by definition. And so the only solution going forward for parents upset about whatever it is in in the school system, it might be CRT today, but these are the same battles of common core of yesterday and it'll be there might be something else going forward even if it's like whack-a-mole there's always something different that's going to show up because people fundamentally disagree with how their kids should be raised and that's okay it's okay to have these disagreements but all these arguments that we've seen since 2020 over um in-person versus remote instruction this curriculum or that curriculum or this kind of mitigation strategy for COVID or that kind of mitigation strategy for COVID, 
They're all just symptoms of the larger problem, which happens to be a one size fits all government run school system. The only way out of this is school choice. And more and more people are seeing this. We've even seen bills introduced in places like Tennessee, for example, where if you disagree with if if your school isn't open for in-person instruction, then you get a voucher to go somewhere else. There's legislation that's explicitly linking the one size fits all problems to the right solution, which is school choice. Yeah. We're see, we see this in with Arizona Governor Doug Ducey. He has a couple programs. If your public school doesn't open or if you uh, disagree with the COVID mitigation strategy in your public school, you get a $7,000 voucher to go to a private school. This is the only solution going forward with, yep. with freedom rather than force. Corey, I think that speaks to the huge differential you see in things like parent satisfaction rates uh, at for parents whose kids are at a you know, an assigned government school versus parents of students who have uh, participated in choice programs. And so it, it, I I think, you know, there, there are a number of different metrics that parents use for determining educational quality other than simply test scores. And can can you speak to that a little bit on what, how, um, how those other metrics play into parent satisfaction rates and why those are just as valid as, standardized test scores? I think they're more valid than standardized test scores. Satisfaction rates of the the satisfaction level of a parent in this school versus versus that school encompasses every single dimension of quality that that goes into the school. Test scores are part of it, right? But it's not the only thing that parents care about. They also care about whether the kid's being bullied whether, what the mental health of their kid is in, in the school. What, what, what's this, how safe does their kid feel in school? How, are they interested in the topic? Are they uh, showing up to class each day? Yeah. Uh, it, it, is, is the kid happy? Um, and is, is, the, is the teacher teaching the curriculum in an unbiased way? Is it reflecting the values of the parents? There's so many things that go into this decision on the part of parents And the standardized test scores don't capture all of those things. That's just the reality. And so I would argue that the best measure of school quality for an individual family is, one, did you pick the school? And two, if you picked the school, did you like the school? And do you like it better than the alternatives? If they can answer yes to those two questions, then that's a successful school for that parent. One size doesn't fit all. Metrics of quality will differ by individual preferences and desires for, for, for your own children. And these average metrics lose all of that, lose all those things. Um, on, on that note, Corey, um, you know, I love what, uh, on the life issue, I love what they've begun to do with, with what's going on in, in uh, abortion clinics behind the scenes, you know, capturing real life video for years. I mean, I'm somebody who sat in classrooms three, four, five days a week all over the country inner city, rural, suburban, urban. And, and I'm like, man, if somebody could see, I couldn't do it, right? Because I'd be putting the teacher in trouble. But I'm waiting for the day that a Corey DeAngelis or somebody that's got gut says, look, let's get some footage uh, from the classroom to show these parents. Because a lot of parents in the inner city don't know that their kids A, that they came home with, um, because of the lack of rigor behind it, is like a C or a D at the school in the suburbs, 10, 10 minutes from that. They don't know that it's not. Sometimes I would ask kids, do y'all know that this is not normal? 
like to, to always be fighting each other and, 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 you know, profanity, you know, from from the teachers as well as the students. Guys, this is not normal. And a lot of times parents just have no clue because the child's not coming home saying anything. They don't want mom coming up there acting up, uh, you know, tearing up furniture and stuff. Uh, you know, is there something, you know, where, where where folks are saying, let's get some insider video of what's going inside these four walls? So some people are making those proposals. I'm kind of. Um... Not not sure I want to support those proposals for a variety of reasons. It doesn't seem like it's politically popular right now for for, for one. But um, to the other, you're not to, politically to, popular, man. Come uh, on, uh, man. Like I don't know. Look look at the uh, look at the uh, polling on education savings accounts. It's about seventy eight percent support. Right, right. I'm pretty pretty dang popular in the okay, position that right. I hold. Uh, it's just that the teachers unions are pretty loud in, in their opposition. They act like the sky is falling and they freak right. out whenever. Um, we, we mentioned any change to the status quo, but um, to the credit of, of people proposing this particular policy, uh, the teachers were already doing it on remote learning, right? They were already, uh, ha- they had their lessons recorded. They're, they do this with, with higher education in many colleges, they have their lessons recorded. So if there was such a policy, I think it should be uh, either just audio only available to the parents or faced if it is video faced at the front end of the room, yeah. just so it's the teacher and and, I, and not the, the children. I've heard about those policies. We've, we've got some of those kind of, you know, getting down here at our state house. But my thing is more, you know, if you know that something's being recorded, you're going to act a whole lot differently than what I see when I'm in the classroom. And, and we yeah. just need some insider stuff, some some unscheduled uh, recording. Well, we have that with um, police body cams and right. people, you know, point out that the, the best police, they, they want the body cams, right? So maybe the better teachers would be more willing to support the cameras in the classroom. But um, look, I would rather have an organic market driven response. I don't want That's to determine right. what any, I don't want to determine your curriculum. I don't want to determine your, your transparency policies. I don't That's want right. to determine um how you teach math and reading. I, I just want each individual family to choose. And then if families have the money following them, if a school wants to alleviate the concerns of parents and build more trust, maybe some schools could voluntarily come up with these types of policies. But I think, uh, I think that's the best way forward right. to, to, yeah, to let them experiment without me saying, you know, you guys all have to do this policy because I don't know the unintended consequences yet. It has a half. I'd rather it, it be a let a thousand flowers bloom. Yeah. Approach. That, that, I mean, honestly, Corey, and, and I have a, I don't know where, where AFC stands on, on, on these things in particular, but that's something that, you know, Troy and I, we've been kicking around on this academic transparency uh, model bill that, that uh, Goldwater is, is floating Goldwater, amazing organization, great friends with them. Think think they did do great stuff. And obviously anything transparency on, on its face, we, we love the concept of, but we've even struggled a little bit with some of these things in the sense of, you know, the, the, the level of bureaucracy we'd have to put on a school and on a teacher, you know, the, to, to, to be able to post every little thing that they do. Uh, you know, we said this to one of the lawmakers of like, Hey, you know, do you know what you're going to be doing six months from now? Do you know what you're going to be teaching six months to the day to, to be able to post that? Whereas again, the, the, the core, the simple answer to the very problem that we're trying to address with some of these things is the backpack bill or, or some type yeah. of universal choice program 
where it's just like, look, if you're not, you know, yes, let's, let's post curriculum, the things that the school board approves, all of that should be readily available. But, you know, I don't want to stop the teacher who just read a really great history book from saying, Hey, I'm going to, I just finished this book. I'm going to teach from this today. And they decide not to, because they have to go and make 13 scanned copies and post it to a website and yeah. do all these other things, you know, it would, it would that would just hurt. And, and so, so there's things like that, that, so, you know, we, we, we try to overcomplicate some things where the answer might be a little bit simpler. Yeah. I, you know, I think the transparency bills proposed by Goldwater and others are much less, less burdensome than, than something like a, you know, actually having a, a, a camera. A camera. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, an easier step in, in, in the direction of transparency. If you, if you don't have school choice, but if you do have school choice, that's the best answer. And that should incentivize schools to provide more information to reduce the risk of choosing that school in the minds of parents. So I think that's the better solution, the market mechanism from, from the bottom up. Uh, just one more thing on the, the question of, uh, you know, test scores versus other metrics. I like to point out um, other studies that have found like disconnects between effects on test scores and effects on these other metrics that we might think are more important. And one of them is here in D.C. They have the D.C. voucher program, the latest uh, experiment, random assignment, gold standard evaluation. You can say it's the effect of the program and not the background of the students. Or you could be pretty confident that that's the case is that in 2019, they did this evaluation, federal evaluation after three years Students who won the, the lottery to use the voucher program here in D.C., which, by the way, was only about a third of what they spend in the government schools. So it was about $10,000 versus the $30,000 that they spend in the government schools. They found no effects on test scores after three years, math or reading, no statistically significant difference. But they did find large positive effects on some reports of safety, satisfaction, and attendance. Of course, the the, the media, oh, this, this, this did no better than the public schools without mentioning that, well, they did a third of the cost. And then, oh, by the way, there's all these positive effects on these non-test score outcomes that somehow you forgot to report, um, which just goes to show that, that, that if you only looked at the test score results, you wouldn't, you would think that, okay, it was no better. Yeah. Um, and in another, another evaluation in Harlem Children's Zone in uh, New York City, there's a random lottery experiment of charter schools out there. And they found that students, male students who won the lottery to attend a charter school, this is by Dobby and Fryer, I think uh, Harvard and Princeton researchers, they found that student, male students that won the lottery had a 100% reduction, a complete elimination of the likelihood of incarceration. 4.4% of the lottery losers ended up incarcerated. 0% of the lottery winners ended up incarcerated. So a complete wow. elimination of crime. And there's actually now been six peer-reviewed study on, studies on the topic uh, linking school choice to crime reduction. All, five, all six of them finding statistically significant reductions in crime. Wow. And that same study in Harlem's Children's Zone looked at female students and reports of teenage pregnancies. They found that winning a lottery for female students to attend a charter school in Harlem's Children's Zone in New York City had a 59% reduction in teenage pregnancies for female students. So these are things that just you, if you didn't look at these things, you wouldn't have known. I mean, parents know, right? Parents, 
know why they're choosing particular schools for kids and why they think that there are benefits there. But if you did an academic study that only looked at test scores, you wanted to know you, you wouldn't have captured these on the ground details. And that's why at the end of the day, we have to trust parents because in general, they know and care more about their kids' educational needs and other needs than anyone else, especially more than bureaucrats sitting in offices hundreds of miles away. Uh, no, I, I, honestly, as you're talking, Corey, I'm, I'm thinking about a call we got two weeks ago from a parent in a, in a suburb here in Ohio um, who, again, kid goes to one of the better schools, you know, public schools in, in the area. And from all we could tell, you know, fairly good teachers and all, all you know, not th- this parent was not knocking necessarily teachers in, in any form, but their kid was just being bullied by other kids. And it was just an environment, you know, this is something you could say is let's grant or, or, or create a situation where this is completely out of the control of the administrators and of the teachers. And, and it's just a situation where interpersonal relationships between kids has created an environment where this, this one kid cannot thrive, but he has no place they can go because their school is deemed academically successful according to the state. And they're not under the 250% of the poverty level. And so he has to continually go back to a school where he's being bullied every day. Um, and so again, it's, it, when, when the focus is not on the kids, this is the type of systems that we build. Um, Corey DeAngelis, thank you so much for being so Very gracious good. with your time. Awesome. Thanks for everything that you do. Uh, if people want to get connected with American Federation for Children, how do they find you? How do they get connected with you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at D'Angelo's yeah. <laughs> Corey. But uh, if you want to help us in the fight for education freedom, you can go to the Education Freedom Pledge. It's at educationfreedompledge.com. That's right. Uh, our, our, you know, the sponsors of our backpack bill uh, have signed on to that. So you should also, while you're, uh, while you're there, send it to your state lawmaker and make sure they sign on as well. Uh, Corey DeAngelis, thanks for all that you do, brother. And uh, we'll, we'll get you next time here on The Narrative. 